Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. 2019 was the 500-year anniversary of the launch of Ferdinand Magellan's Voyage Around the World, a milestone marked by commemorative sailings, museum exhibitions, and a joint submission from Spain and Portugal to UNESCO. Two years later, the Philippines had their own commemoration of Magellan's voyage, the 500th anniversary of his death at the hands of local leader Lapu Lapu, a master voyager in Spain and Portugal, a defeated imperialist in the Philippines. These are just two of the ways that Magellan's image has evolved and changed over the past five centuries. But what was the man actually like? Felipe Fernandez Armesto tries to get at who Magellan really was in his latest book, Straits Beyond the Myth of Magellan. Relying on first-hand accounts of Magellan's voyage, Felipe portrays Magellan as a self-promoter, devious overpromiser, lover of chivalric literature, ruthless authoritarian, and at the end, a believer in his own hype. Felipe holds the William P. Reynolds Chair of Mission in Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame, where he's professor in the Departments of History and Classics and the Program in the History and Philosophy of Science. His most recent books are Out of Our Minds and, as editor, The Oxford Illustrated History of the World. Today, Felipe and I talk about Magellan. The man, his voyage, what it was actually supposed to do, and the legacy of his expedition. So, Felipe, thank you so much for joining us on the Asian Review of Books podcast today. Um, I wanted to start with maybe Magellan's early life, you know, or his life before his expedition. You know, what do we know about it? And also, you know, why did he defect from Portugal to Spain? Well, thank you, Nicholas. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the question. In order to understand Magellan, you you need to begin with the fact that he's an orphan. His parents die when he's young. He's the scion of a a minor Portuguese noble family who lived really on the kind of edge of the country, right up in the, the north. So he's an outsider. And he's an outsider who's kind of down on his luck, really, from very early on in his life. He's educated at the court of King Manuel the First, the, the, the King Manuel the Fortunate of Portugal, and there he's given an education which is almost entirely military. I mean, it's really focused on producing squires to fight for the king. There are, there are opportunities for a wider education. You could learn Latin and Greek at court if you had the talent for it, but Magellan doesn't seem to have had that talent. He was really limited to this very military way of upbringing. His education was in arms, not letters. And the whole experience seems to have left him with a sort of chip on his shoulder. And he's a person who kind of resents the fact that he's been cheated of his birthright, and he's always looking for opportunities above all. His reading, he reads chivalric romances, what I call the station bookstall fiction, or the airport bookstall pulp fiction of the day. And these are, you know, stories of of heroism in which heroes down on their luck make good, usually by having fantastic adventures, seaborne adventures very often, 
conquering islands, fighting monsters, giants. This is the sort of thing that he's he's brought up reading. He kind of models his ambitions on those fictional heroes. I think, therefore, the reason why he defects from Portugal and goes to seek his fortune in Spain is because he's very dissatisfied with the progress he makes at the Portuguese court and in Portuguese service. He's sent to fight wars in the Indian Ocean, but he never really makes the grade. He never achieves the knighthood that he craves or the sort of money. <laughs> he tries to invest in various various business operations. They all go wrong. So he never really makes the grade that this upbringing, this reading, has inspired him to seek. And he goes to Spain, really, in resentment against the way the King of Portugal has failed to provide him with the opportunities and rewards he craved and requested. I'm, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but you mentioned kind of his, um, you know, he comes from kind of a world of squires and, you know, that kind of medieval heritage. And it reminds me of something you pop up in your book, which is this, the, the, the theory that that Patagonia is actually a reference to um, this old kind of, I think it's, I think it's a medieval novel or, or medieval book. Um, I guess, how important is this, I guess, is uh, this kind of framing, this kind of literary framing on understanding what Magellan did and what he was like? Yeah, it's not a theory. I mean, this is one of the few facts you'd be absolutely sure of, is that Patagonia, the name of this part of, of what is now Argentina, cone of South America, where he spends winter quarters on his great voyage, uh, really pretty much he's there from March to October 1520. In that part of the world, uh, he bestows upon it uh, effectively the name Patagonia, because one of the books that he read, one of the books that most influenced him, was a chivalric romance, not actually a medieval one. It was published in 1509, so about four years after he, if you like, graduates from his formal education. A novel in which uh, one of the giants who characterize the story and you're always sort of fighting against the, the hero is called Patagon, which of course means... Bigfoot. Uh, and when Magellan gets to Patagonia, he, and indeed I think pretty much the whole crew, see the people whom they encounter as giants. So all the accounts that have survived emphasize how, how tall these people were. And some of the descriptions actually invest these people with characteristics that I'm sure they ever really had, but which are drawn from this fictional reading. So that's why he calls one of the natives whom he captures in order to take him back as a specimen back to, to Europe. He calls that native Pathagon and tribute to the the giant in the in the storybook. And you know that I think that brings us to the second part of your question, because that's a very good example of how I think all of us in our lives are modeled 
by our education, and specifically if we're literate people, if we're intellectuals in any sense, we are modelled by what we read. I would say you are what you read. And when you have an experience like these guys were having in Patagonia, an experience of an environment that no one had ever recorded before, a place that no one from your own homeland, your own part of the world had ever seen, and people who were utterly unprecedented and unparalleled in the experience of Europeans at the time. What do you do? How do you understand these new experiences you're having, these new sites that you're seeing, and these new people that you're encountering. Of course, you know, this is basic psychology. You map them onto what you already think you know. And of course, that has to come from reading because no one's ever really experienced it. So it's got to come from that kind of vicarious experience that we call imagination. So I want to kind of take a step back to the to the bigger picture, which is... Um, you know, Magellan's voyage is is part of, I'm going to use the word competition, but kind of this like competition between Spain and Portugal about um, about how to get spice from the Spice Islands. And I wonder if you might kind of explain a bit more about that. Like what was the, like what was the, I'm going to use the word geopolitical, even though it's probably centuries too early to use that term, the kind of the kind of geopolitical context in which um, Spain decided to fund Magellan's voyage. Spices, and specifically cloves, nutmeg, and mace, were the most valuable products per unit of bulk in world trade at the time, with a huge demand in China and quite a big demand in Europe. So if you could dominate the sources of supply, or if you could get a grip on a substantial part of the trade in those items, then you could make money. And above all, you know, for Spain and Portugal, you've got to remember this is before, you know, the great sort of age of European world hegemony. It's before the Spanish and Portuguese empires really acquire the vast dimensions and wealth that later characterizes them. And they're still, you know, poor backwaters in the world economy, right on the fringe of the known world. They're looked down on by the far richer economies and more advanced knowledge systems that you find in Asia, especially around the Indian Ocean, in Islam and in China. People look down on Europe. So they've got a lot of ground to make up. They're like, I liken them to, you know, Developing countries nowadays desperately drilling for offshore resources. So those spices are tremendously alluring to the rulers of both these monarchies and to their merchant classes. And in 1494, Spain and Portugal, inveterate enemy kingdoms, divided the world between them into two spheres of navigation, one which was going to be a Portuguese monopoly, the other was going to be a Spanish monopoly. But what they didn't take into account was where did the spice islands, because these spices were all produced in you know, about sort of five small islands in what we now know as the Moluccas, 
they hadn't taken into account where those islands fell in their division of the world. It wasn't clear whether they fell on the Spanish side or the Portuguese side. And that's the basis for this tremendous competition between Spain and Portugal to control them, or at least to get privileged access to their trade. I guess there's one other element that one has to bear into account, which is because people didn't know how big the world was. They had pretty shrewd calculations which were inherited from ancient sources, but nobody had really verified these. And Columbus had argued that the world was very small, and therefore it was, I mean, if Columbus was right, and Magellan pretty much agreed with him about this, if Columbus was right, then the Spice Islands were accessible by sailing across the Atlantic and around the Americas, as well as by the route which the Portuguese followed around the Cape of Good Hope and across the Indian Ocean. So that's the basis of the competition. It's a kind of race. has to be said, by the time Magellan sails, the Portuguese have already won that race. They've reached the Spice Islands by their chosen route. Uh, but the king of Spain, who at the time was a, a new young king with, you know, full of hope and ambition, with also tremendous interest in geography, he thought that it was worth taking this tremendous risk of investing in, in Magellan in order to try and steal a march on the Portuguese and pioneer a new route that would be within Spain's zone of navigation. Well, that's a good segue to my next question, which is what was Magellan's voyage supposed to do? Um, and I'm deliberately saying supposed to do because that's one of the big points of contention on on, on the expedition. Um, so what was Magellan supposed to be doing? Supposed in the sense of, you know, what did the king's orders say? He was supposed to sail across the Atlantic, through or around the Americas, as we now call them, and thence to the Spice Islands, so approaching them from the east. Um, whereas, as I say, the Portuguese had already established an alternative and what turned out to be a practical route, uh, approaching them um, from the west. That was that was backed. That project was backed by the the king to an extraordinary degree. I mean, Spain typically didn't waste money on these adventures by explorers because most plans were crazy. Magellan's was amongst the craziest of the lot. There was very little practical chance of any advantageous outcome to this expedition. Uh, and so it was a kind of gamble, and the king was prepared to invest really an extraordinary amount of, of resources, uh, over six million maravedias at a time when the entire income of the crown annually was 520 million. So it's a very, this was a really major undertaking. The rest of the money was made up by a, a merchant who had some experience, a Spanish merchant who had some experience of trade with Portugal and who knew that the spice trade would, if they could get you know, a share of it, would produce fabulous returns. And he had a lot of spare cash. So for him, it was, again, you know, just a gamble uh, and, and 
database if you've got spare resources and you're an investor and you haven't got anything to invest in you're more likely to invest in something crazy uh, than you would in normal more normal circumstances so that was really the basis of Magellan's being able to raise his finance in Spain, something which would have been impossible at the time in Portugal. They had already, you know, sewn up the the project to their own satisfaction by much more direct and cheap methods. So, I mean, obviously, Magellan does his own thing. <laughs> he, he um, this is obviously a big point of contention. Um, but could you chart out the voyage that his ships actually took, um, especially and also kind of how long each leg of it took. You know, it sounds like getting down to what's now called the Straits of Magellan was actually a very long and arduous process. Um, You're right, of course, Nicholas, to say that there was a tremendous amount of tension about what the voyage was really going to do. Because although it was supposed from perspective of the king's orders to go to the Moluccas and stake a claim in a share of the spice trade. Magellan had a different project of his own, which was going to the Philippines. He knew about because he'd lived in Malacca, in what is now Malaysia, for a while in 1511, and he'd picked up a lot of information about the Philippines. And above all, he knew that the Philippines had gold. And gold, in a way, put spices on one side. If you've got gold, you know, you can do all the trade that you want. He also knew the Philippines were very close to and favorable for trade with China. And China was the world's you know, richest economy and biggest market at the time. So his personal ambitions are focused on the Philippines. I think we can prove this with reference to his correspondence with the King of Spain, because he arranged that if he found more than five or six islands, he would be able to have a an inordinate share of the profits of those extra discoveries. And since, as far as people knew at the time, there were five islands in what they called the Moluccas and what they called the Slice Islands, that means that he was definitely envisaging finding somewhere else. And indeed, when he gets to the latitude of the Moluccas on his voyage, and he knows the latitude of the Moluccas because it was well known that they were on the equator, so that's one of the few latitudes to be pretty certain when you're on it. When he gets to that latitude, he bypasses the Moluccas and goes straight for the Philippines, or where he thinks the Philippines are. As for the, the phases that you ask about, which unfolded in the course of the voyage, of course, it depends what you mean by phases or bits of the voyage. In one sense, I mean, to me, they're really two phases. If you're interested in the life of Magellan, in how he changes and develops, how the experience of the voyage affects his character and his mental and spiritual Development. If that's what you're interested in, that's really primarily my own interest in the book, because it's a biography, then there are really two phases. There's a sort of Atlantic phase in which he gets progressively more ruthless 
And this is this phase is characterized by internal dissensions, a struggle for power in the fleet, which culminates in a in a mutiny in which Magellan murders garrots or maroons, all his main enemies on the fleet. And then the second voyage is the crossing of the Pacific, which is in a way just as terrible because although for the first time really in the voyage they get a sustainedly favorable wind it just carries them further and further into disaster but really i mean i suppose if you want a kind of chronological breakdown which is what you asked me for you would go something like this september 1519 to february 1520 they're crossing the atlantic amidst all this rivalry and bloodshed and then from March to October 1520, they're wintering on the coast of, of Patagonia with their supplies dwindling, with one of their ships being lost and with the mutiny culminating in Magellan performing all those deeds of, of violence and also deeds of violence towards the indigenous people, I might add. And then um, I guess from... Um, October to December 1520. They're sailing through the Strait of Magellan at last. They found this, this strait that they were seeking, and it proves to be a very terrible experience because it's like a wind tunnel with the wind against them, and they're sailing in this unfamiliar environment of towering cliffs and, and creatures whom they had never expected to encounter, and those dissensions and the 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 mutinies are continuing indeed you know, at this point the main ship in the fleet deserts and then there's the phase this terrible crossing of the pacific and uh, that lasts from say november 1520 to march 1521 so it's a terribly long and grueling uh, experience and and by the time they finally sight land which is in Guam or land that they can actually kind of um, make land for land. They're so depleted in resources that they're, they're eating, literally they're chewing with gums swollen by scurvy on leather which they've stripped from the lining of the of the masts and one of the, the, the surviving Kant says that rats were sold, I can't even remember for how much, like 12 ducats each, if you could get one. So they're, they're, they're starving, and of course, all along the voyage of the Pacific, you know, they're, they're, they're throwing dead seamen overboard periodically. So that's, that's the point at which, they, in a way, the voyage is, um, uh, is over. They spend... Um, a while, say, from about March 1521 to May 1521 in the Philippines, where all Magellan's ambitions of founding a fief, conquering land, getting a lot of gold, all of that fails and um, ends with his own death in really a foredoomed death in a battle that he cannot win and then after that the the rest of the crew hightail it they wander around they seek a way back to spain some of them via the uh the malaccas 
Uh, and eventually, in October 1522, the handful of survivors from this terrible voyage, which killed 90% of the um, uh, effective complement of the the crew, if you take out the people who deserted and so on, the death rate is 90% of the handful of survivors. In fact, just 18 survivors get back to Spain in October 1522. So there are a lot of segues there to questions that I want to ask. Um, but maybe let's start with, you, you know, you talk about, um, you know, kind of the, the state of the expedition when they finally make it to, you know, quote unquote Asia, um, when they make it to, to the Philippines. Um, and so how does, I mean, how does the expedition, how does Magellan interact with local communities? Um, he kind of gets co-opted into this kind of local um, power struggle, as it as it were, um, and then obviously, you know, how how of course does that decision lead to his death? Well, his first encounter with indigenous people in Asia is actually in Guam, where they they make their first landfall at the the end of the crossing of the Pacific, and by that time, the Magellan and his crew are so weak and enfeebled by starvation and disease uh, that they are easy prey for the the indigenous people who come on board and help themselves to whatever they want. In fact, the Spaniards call um, the the Guam and the neighboring islands the Isles of Thieves. I mean, that's the first name that Europeans bestow on that archipelago. Uh, and Magellan responds by, in a typical way, I mean, he, he does this really throughout his, his voyage when he's displeased with the response of indigenous people to his arrival. He, he goes on shore and he kills all natives and he burns villages. Uh, obviously, um, this is not a good basis for fruitful relationships, and the Spaniards have to flee from Guam. And then they go to the Philippines, where Magellan sees um, a political opportunity, I think it's fair to say. And I, in a way, I think he was quite right. I think he was quite shrewd to appreciate that the Philippines were divided amongst all these many small states, small kingdoms. Uh, and that he he could see that they were kind of ripe for some kind of political unification. So he looks for a local ruler to back against the rest, for a local ruler to promote as the chief of this potential unified state that he sees an opportunity for creating. But he all goes wrong because he, he, if you like, he sort of backs the wrong Raja. He chooses the wrong guy, who's actually not a very powerful king, and and finds himself confronting other far more powerful enemies. And it's in battle against one of those in his attempt to impose this new political future on the islands that he uh, that he meets his. His end. Very interesting that you know the Spaniards are defeated both in Guam and in the Philippines by indigenous forces. You now there's nothing inevitable about Europeans having victories on their remote colonial frontiers. In fact, quite the the reverse. I would say on the whole, Europeans uh, are not well equipped uh, 
to make remote conquests. If they're going to succeed in making them, they have to do so with indigenous help. So, you know, obviously Magellan is killed in the Philippines, um, which is why, of course, it's always, it's always kind of strange to kind of think of Magellan as, as, the, as the first person to circumnavigate the globe, because actually he doesn't. Um, and so I just want to have a quick question about kind of that, that actual last leg um, from the Philippines back to Spain, you know, with, um, I think it's what his name, um, El, El Cano captains the last ship back. So I just want to have a quick question about kind of how actually did those final remnants of the expedition make it back to Spain? Magellan, of course, never even contemplated a circumnavigation of the world. In fact, it would have been contrary to his his orders to do so, and there would have been no sense in his contemplating a circumnavigation of the world, because his whole expedition was mooted, was formulated on the basis of a small globe, and therefore it would have made far better sense you know, to return back the way he'd come. And that was indeed his intention, and quite clearly the first intention of the survivors who remained after his own death in battle. And they had two ships left at that stage, and they decided that well, actually they had three, but they had to scuttle one of them. So they had two, effectively, they've got two ships left, and they decide that one ship is going to try and get back to Spain across the Pacific and via the Americas, and the other is going to risk infringing the treaty with Portugal and sail back to Europe by the Portuguese route. And what they say, the way they explain this is they say, well, they, they hope that one, at least one of the ships will make it and be able to bring news of the failure of the expedition back to uh, the King of Spain. So the the, the ship that attempts <laughs> the Pacific voyage, it's like a complete disaster, and most of the crew die, and they encounter this terrible weather and storms and stuff, and the, the ship is is you know about to sink when they finally sort of hightail it back to port, and they all fall into the hands of the Portuguese, and those who survive imprisonment, they have terrible sort of long period of imprisonment and suffering, and most of them die, and finally a handful uh, eventually repatriated by the Portuguese. The other ship, the Victoria, which, as you rightly say, was captained by Juan Sebastián de heads back via the Portuguese route to Europe. And, of course, that's a terrible voyage as well because, you know, they're in perpetual fear of being captured by the Portuguese. Eventually, when they get to the Cape Verde Islands, most of them are captured by the Portuguese. And these final, you know, surviving few, it's a terrible story because, as, again, as they, when they were crossing the Pacific every so often, you know, they're, they're heaving another dead sailor overboard. Eventually, these these 18 guys get back to to Spain and in all thankfulness for their survival, you know, they parade through the, the street of, of Seville in, in penitential garb, wearing any of their undershirts and uh, make their their um, act of gratitude to to God for being spared the fate of almost all of their their companions on the voyage. So, you know, one thing that kind of strikes me in kind of reading your book is that there seem to be a lot of accounts of Magellan's journey, um, both from his boosters and also from uh, some of his critics. Is 
is that is that normal? Is it normal to have so much, I guess, um, so much writing about about an expedition like this? And then also kind of, I guess, also who were these people that wrote about about Miguel and what do they think of the man? In a way, there's an exceptional amount of material about Magellan's voyage because those who did survive had this tremendously dramatic story to tell and also, to some extent, a story of their personal salvation because to be spared, you know, amongst so few who are spared does, you know, feel, if if that sort of thing happens to you, it does feel like an act of kind of divine grace. It feels like a kind of miracle, and that feeling comes through some of the surviving accounts. It's an unusual, it's also unusual, however, in that uh, Magellan himself, of course, didn't write an account the narrative sources have to be supplemented. You can only really get at the truth of the voyage by turning to other sources, particularly the reports of inquiries held by both the Spanish and Portuguese crowns into into what had had happened and the interrogations by the Portuguese of the prisoners they they took. So it's really a question of piecing all these different sources together. Of the narrative sources that have survived, I think some of them are really log books, and most of those don't go into a great deal of detail about what happened. But there are two narrative sources that are particularly that were written by survivors with the aim, you know, sort of perpetuating the, the memory of the the voyage. And I think that these two accounts are especially interesting. One is by Antonio de Pigaceta, who was a, a gentleman from Vicenza in Italy, and he he had um a, a, a kind of humanistic upbringing. He was quite well educated. And he was, I suppose, what we might call a gentleman adventurer, and he took service with Magellan quite deliberately with the intention, I think, of writing up the the voyage. He said he was you know, curious about the, the the unknown parts of the the world. And that does come through the way he wrote the voyage up. But he was Magellan's great eulogist. I mean he was the sort of stooge, if you like, who communicated to the world the image that Magellan wanted to project with himself, this heroic, chivalric, rather romantic uh, image. Uh, and, and you may, may remember Winston Churchill said that he, he, he wasn't afraid of the judgment of history because he intended to write it himself. Well, Magellan wasn't up to that, but he had this guy, he's sort of employed Pigafetta to, uh, to write it for him. And Pigafetta's account is full of this sort of mood of religious exaltation, Gaffetta really felt that God had spared him, you know, with the, uh, with, with the, the intention that he should, you know, do something, um, something notable, something um, uh, worthy with the life that God had, had, had granted him as a result of sparing him from the disasters of the voyage. And he also, um, you know, he, he, he has a religious vocation because he's a religious knight of the Order of 
of St. John. So that comes through very strongly, but even more strongly is his loyalty to Magellan. I mean, Magellan was a, a revolting man in many ways, but he was capable, he definitely had some charisma, and he was capable of inspiring loyalty. The other great account of the survivors just by an ordinary seaman who has a terrible life. I mean, he's one of these guys who's, who's, who's imprisoned by the Portuguese and eventually he makes it back to Spain after many years and all of his companions, or most of his companions have died in captivity. And when he gets home, he finds his wife has, 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 has married somebody else and alienated all of his property. Uh, so I think it's a sort of martyr moment in the, the history of Magellan's voyage. And his account is, um, you know, it's obviously extremely interesting because it does give you the sort of perspective of an ordinary seaman. And by the time he wrote it, he'd obviously kind of forgotten a lot and got muddled about quite a few of the details. But it is a, you know, it's a precious, it's a precious document which, although it may not tell you all the truth about the voyage, gives you this additional perspective. So I want to end with something you kind of mention at the very end of your book, um, which is, it, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but kind of the idea of the first circumnavigation of the globe is, it's it's a strange historical event to celebrate. Um, I think you note that no one tried to sail, uh, well, not that no one tried to sail Magellan's route afterwards, but it proved to be uh, very difficult and not commercially viable. Um, no one uses it for trade. They all use different routes. Um, so I guess, but what's actually the legacy of, of Magellan's expedition? And perhaps to phrase the question differently, how might the world be different if it had failed, if he had, you know, done what he was supposed to do, let's say, or had just turned back at the, at the straits because it was too difficult? Well, of course, the voyage was a failure. It was a failure by every measurable standard. It failed. It didn't produce the uh, consequences that they didn't even attempt to perform the tasks that the king had specified, and it didn't achieve what Magellan wanted for himself. It was also a failure in the sense that almost everybody died. (laughs) Most of the ships were lost. And it didn't make a profit. I mean, one of the many myths about this voyage is that, uh, you know, at the end, when they finally get back to Spain, they've got a cargo of spices, which which pays for the entire financial outlay of the, the expedition. Course, that's not taking into account all the loss of life, including all the indigenous lives killed and all the villages burned and so on. Uh, but even that isn't true because actually the, the costs of the voyage continued to have to be paid for many years, including sort of things like pensions to widows. The costs of the accounting for the expedition, you know, the, the, the accountant's fees <laughs> amounted, you know, to more than the, um, uh, the, 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 Profit ascribed to the cargo of spices that they they brought home. So it was a failure in every respect. And I, you know, I think that what emerges from your question, Nicholas, is the problem of you know how do reputations get made, and why is is Magellan so celebrated, and 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 why does he alone of all these dead white male 
explorers of the period escape, you know, sort of obloquy and the lust for vengeance and all that hatred which um, his fellow explorers seem to inspire in the politically correct and the crazily woke nowadays. Uh, I, 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 I'm really not sure I've got an answer to that question, but I think it's true in general, isn't it? That you know, what moves history, what changes the way we think and behave, it's not the facts as they happen. It's the falsehoods people believe. And Magellan's voyage has you know, been very... You know, it failed in every measurable way. It's been successful in generating a sort of mythopoeia. It's been successful in generating a lot of myths. And I, I you know, I think to a great extent, Antonio Pigafetta, the guy I mentioned who wrote up Magellan's voyage in gratitude for and admiration of him, I think to some extent he was responsible for laying the foundation of this this legend. And now, you know, you can see that people think <laughs> that Miguel is a great, great hero who, who advanced the cause of science. I mean, none of that isn't true. It made absolutely no difference. I mean, even people even continued to think that the world was very much smaller than it is. Even after Miguel had crossed the Pacific and the, the, the evidence that he'd accumulated of the size of the world just you know, gets lost, it gets, gets forgotten, it gets omitted from the, the record. So that the, the material and scientific outcome of the voyage is pretty much zero, but the sort of myth's value that it generates is enormous. Do you think there might be something to him kind of making it to, I guess in some ways, not quite planting the Spanish flag in the Philippines, but, but doing something similar to that? Um, is that potentially a legacy of, of Magellan's expedition, or would that have happened potentially anyway? Well, I, I don't think you can say it's a legacy of Magellan's expedition. I mean, that the Spanish appropriation of the Philippines happens later. I guess you could say that Magellan helps to plant that ambition in Spanish breasts and in the kind of... Um, you know, the the decision-making processes of the monarchy. And I suppose you could also say that although his voyage was was such a disaster, uh, the very fact <laughs> that, that some survivors got back to Spain did create the illusion that maybe, you know, with better management and with the experience of Magellan's voyage behind them, they might be able to make a success of, of reconstructing his voyage following the route that he, he pioneered. Of course, all those expectations came to nothing in the, in the few years following Magellan's voyage. The, the Spanish monarchy and some merchants who were foolish enough to renew investment in this sort of project all you know, came to grief and the, the outcome of future expeditions was, was just as bad, really, as that of, um, of Magellan. So in that sense, I suppose you could say that it's very difficult to know whether if Magellan hadn't attempted his project, the Spanish crown would have remained 
um, active in trying to acquire the Philippines. But I think probably they would. I think in the long run, Magellan's voyage didn't make any difference to that either. Because as soon as somebody like Cortes, you know, had conquered Mexico, he immediately started thinking, of how do I get to China, you know? So crossing the Pacific became part of the project of conquering the new world or an extension of that project. And that would have been the case, I presume, even if Magellan had never existed and his voyage had never happened. So with that, I think that's a great place to interview with Felipe Fernandez Armesto, um, author of Straits Beyond the Myth of Magellan. Um, Felipe, I actually have a couple final questions for you, which is um, where can people find your work and uh, what's next for you? Well, it's very kind of you to ask. I, I, I'm, I'm flattered by the idea that people might not want to avoid my work. I'm afraid there's an awful lot of it, and I, I guess it's pretty easy to um, to acquire. Uh, um, a, a formidable, <laughs> I'm very old, because <laughs> in a long lifetime, I've produced quite a formidable body, I suppose, of scholarship, and, uh, and that is all available, and also journalism and broadcasting and stuff like that. So it's, it's not difficult if, to, 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 to track my, my work um, down. I think probably there's all too much of it out there. Uh, as for what's next for me, well, of course, I, I've just had a film <laughs> which came out simultaneously with such of the vagaries of publication. Another book of mine has come out almost simultaneously uh, with Straits, and that's a book in Spanish about the history of engineering in the Spanish global monarchy, which sounds rather boring, but uh, it's really about the infrastructure. It's about how engineers created sort of infrastructure in the Spanish global monarchy, which enriched people and which helped to secure the allegiance of communities that benefited from the Spanish empire. So it's really a book about what is it that makes pre-industrial empires work. And at the moment, I'm writing with a jointly with a, a young a, a, a colleague of mine who's an anthropologist. Um, we're, we're working together on a, a history of primatology, subject which has long interested me and in which I, I offer a course almost every year at the University of Notre Dame where I work. Uh, I'd say that that's, that's the, 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 the main focus of my my um my research at the at the moment and i'm also working a sort of spin-off project on that on an edition of the work of someone a primatologist who's almost forgotten but who was a great pioneer richard lynch garner who actually conducted the first scientific fieldwork expedition dedicated to primatological work he was working on gorillas and chimpanzees in gabon early in the 1890s. And that's incredible, you know, because if you ask most educated people, who did the first primatological fieldwork? They'll, of course, say Jane Goodall. But that wasn't until the 1960s, you know, 70 years after this almost forgotten but very interesting figure. So we're, we're working on a, um, uh, an edition of, of his uh, account of his expedition as well. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to ageofviewbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. 
And you can find casual author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. The ARB podcast is on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more information on who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Felipe, for joining us today. Many thanks to you, Nicholas. It's been a great treat to talk to you.